Dave's podcast, episode 16. The shop closes. TWAT, Snow White, Balloon Trip and Pat. We started to resign ourselves to the closure of the shop. It was difficult because on the face of it and in public, everything was good. How's business? Oh, very good. Debbie had to maintain this front at all times and this got harder and harder the near we came to Christmas 1991, which we knew was the end. The plan was to finish on Christmas Eve as the last customer was served at 5.30. Deb would whitewash over the windows and we would walk away. At this point we had had no contact with the landlord and he had made no contact with us. There was no mention of renewing the lease. At this time, next to the shop was a hairdresser. I booked in to have a major haircut. By now, I had grown an 8-inch ponytail and I decided to have it all cut off. Four years of growing gone. It was part of a new start, a reset. Now, the funny thing is, the man who ran this hairdresser actually was the brother to Jane who would be Debbie's boss at Stepping Stone's day service in around four years' time. And also, in 2006, I would work for Jane at Stepping Stone's for a year, covering an employee who had gone travelling. Now, this is all very complicated, but it'll all become clear in the next half a dozen episodes. Debbie started applying for jobs. She went to an interview in Reading. It was a care home called the Walled Garden. It was for adults with learning difficulties and extreme behavioural issues. She went for an interview and while looking round there was a major incident with one of the residents. She had to be restrained and when that failed to calm her down they administered an injection. They said they would notify her in a letter. The weeks went by And for some reason she thought, I know, I'll give them a ring. So when she did, they said, oh, well, we thought after witnessing that incident, you wouldn't want to join us. They obviously didn't know Debbie. Although the next three years would be some of the hardest and stressful in our lives, a few people would become friends for life. In the real, come on now, I need you sense. Working with adults with learning difficulties would become our life, but more of that later. After the shop closed, I carried on with David's high-quality fresh fish, as I had throughout the whole time we had ran the shop. We had a final meeting with Martin and Louise. They said they would absorb the remaining money owed, around £17,000. The shop on the farm was up and running, and Mr Robert, honest as the day is long, had now changed his name to Mr Robert of Farming Life for me. He was settling into his new life. I was still calling at Park Farm on a Thursday, as I had always done. I would often call in the shop, chat to Robert, and uh, do some shopping and collect some items that Debbie may have ordered. But we never had quite the same relationship as with Martin and Louise after this. 
don't get me wrong, there was never any bad feeling. We had started out as friends and then gone into business. But after this time, we were very busy. Deb's new job was shift work. She would go off to work on Saturday at 8 o'clock in the morning and maybe not return till 3 o'clock on the Sunday. I kept calling at Park Farm for the next five years while the shift fish round kept going. We settled into life A-T-C-A-D after Terry, Collins and Daughters. The first few months, Debbie's earnings started to make a real difference. The work was hard for Debbie. The residents were very challenging. And the next few years, she would never wear a short sleeve top in the summer as her arms were covered in scratches and bites given by the residents. Now, some people may be alarmed by this. At this time, I did find it hard, but she loved it. And I would not appreciate how rewarding working with adults with learning dif difficulties could be to say and let alone do until 10 years later. But that's a lot more jobs away and a lot more podcasts. Yes, we're barely halfway through. Linda would still pick up, pick up any childcare. It was quite erratic as Debbie's shifts changed each week. Linda would also cover Saturday afternoons if I had football. She also covered when John and I had to queue for tickets for the playoff final at Wembley. Now, Reading had finished second in the first division. Now, normally, any other year, that would be automatic promotion to the promised land of the Premier League. But this year, they had decided to reduce the number of teams in the Premier League to only 20. I know, let it go, Dave. It's 30 years ago. So we had followed the stories in the local news of the long queues snaking around Elm Park as people tried to get their tickets for the playoff final. But we couldn't get there until Friday afternoon. So John and I set off, arrived at Elm Park and no queues. We walked straight in, two tickets, thank you very much, bish bash bosh. As we walked away from the turnstiles, we met Mike, who ran the Royals Rendezvous, at the local bar. Hello, boys. Do you want a drink? Oh, well, we didn't think you'd be open. Oh, I'll open up for you. And he unlocked the bar and let us in, followed by a whole queue of thirsty cures. Cure? Thirsty cures? No, that's... Anyway. After an hour, Deb had now returned from her shift and she phoned. Oh, yes, we must have had mobile phones. We're now 1995. How's it going? Oh, we're getting there. It's probably going to be another hour or two in the queue. Debbie then phoned half an hour later. Now, at this time, even the punters crowded around the bar chipped in. Oi, move along there. Come on, mate. And then they started singing, K, Sarah, Sarah, we're going to Wembley. After we had pushed it for a good couple of hours, we staggered home. And that's really all I want to say about the playoff final. As we had had no contact with the landlord at the shop, I carried on using the backyard and the chiller. This went on for a number of weeks until one Friday, 
I bumped into the landlord when I arrived back. I said I was keeping an eye on the building for him, which he seemed to accept and didn't charge me for the electricity to keep the walk-in chiller going. So I had to make alternative arrangements. So I went in with George, who was renting an old milkshed on a farm in Graysley, only about a mile or two from home. It was a quiet lane with electricity and running water. We moved in some freezers, some chillers and our ice machine. We also had a tea urn, which we heated up hot water for washing down. It cost us £50 a week, 25 each in rent, but it saved us that in petrol, not having to run down to the wholesalers in Hook, uh, and wear and tear on the van. Ma, the wholesaler, had a key, and they would deliver our fish in the middle of the night, ready for us to collect in the morning. The farm was rented from the council, but the farmer, who I shall refer to as Mr I'll do anything for a buck, had lots of schemes to make money. The area next to us was turned into kennels and was rented by a security firm. They had very large, fierce dogs. We felt sorry for them as they were often left for a good couple of days without being checked at all. We would throw them bits of fish and fill up their water bowls uh, through the cages with our hoses. It was good security. We were never going to have anybody break in and steal our fish. There certainly was not going to be any smash and crab. The field opposite had a windsock in it. I had no idea why it was there. Until one beautiful summer's evening, I returned back to the yard. We would go back to the yard of an evening and wash up and put away any spare fish we had into the chiller. This particular evening, a white estate car turned up and drove into the field. He had a key to the padlock on the gate, so I guessed he must have had permission to do this. I carried on cleaning and preparing for the next day, while trying to see over the hedge. He seemed to be constructing something. Then suddenly an engine fired up. The guard dogs went wild. Then this vehicle raced down the field and took off. It was a micro-light plane. That reminds me of another flight-related story. Have we got time? Around 1997, my dad received a trip on a hot air balloon, one of these adventure days. As I was around, I would volunteer to accompany my dad on one of these trips. I later did a falconry experience day. So eventually we had a calm morning and we set off to the manor house behind Saver Centre in Reading for a hot air balloon trip. We arrived and followed the instructions for setting up the balloon, which we considered to be part of the whole experience. There were quite a few relatives of, of people going on the flights who had gathered round on the edges. But most of the people on the trip were helping pull the balloon material, holding on to ropes and such like. So when the balloon was up and the basket ready, we started climbing in. Then this lady from the group of observers calmly walked over in her stiletto heels and handed me, now I'm guessing here, 
a designer handbag. She looked at me and I realised she wanted me to put my hands together to give her a bunk up. Hey Dad, you couldn't get us upgraded to first class? Now, hot air balloons are not as peaceful and relaxing as everyone would have you believe. They are kept in the air by hot air. So, every 30 seconds, a burner would roar into life, burning the top of your head and rendering you completely deaf. But we sailed down the M4. I took pictures of the new Reading Stadium being constructed. I also then started to recognise some of my customers' houses from the air. I took photos and later I had them developed and sold them. <laughs> I wish. So it came time to land. It was all a bit haphazard. We were very near the M4. But we made our decision to land in this field. From the air it looked lovely, all but covered in a bit of short straw and stubble. But as we got lower and lower, I could see, and the pilot could see, that half the field was much darker in colour. And then the reason for this appeared. The farmer was muck spreading half the field. Now, in a hot air balloon, once you're on the way down, there's very little you can do. We landed with a bump and the pilot jumped out, holding onto a rope. And we had landed, well, right in the shit. So we jumped out and had to pull the balloon, hovering about 18 inches above the ground. Now, remember designer lady? She never moved, smiling, oblivious to the trouble we were in, until we had reached the clean field. My trainers never recovered, despite many washings. Eventually, I had to just throw them away. By this time, the girls were getting bigger and being off on Saturday, Sunday and Monday and Debbie often being at work, I got to spend a lot of time with them. On Saturdays, if there was football, I had perfected the perfect lunch which involved no washing up. Scampi, chips and butties. Turn on the deep fat fryer. Cook scampi, remove, place in warm oven. Put chips in DFF and cook. Butter bread, jobs are good. If there was no football, we would hire a video. VHS videos are what you had before you had DVDs. Oh, DVDs are what you had before you downloaded everything. We actually had free video shops in the village, but we went to the one by the Carpenter's Arms, as we didn't need to cross any roads. I would walk and Millie and Amy would cycle. The coloured streamers attached to the handlebars blowing in the wind. God, I wish I had streamers on my bike. We would arrive and the girls would spend hours trying to choose, but would always come away with Disney Snow White. Are you sure you don't want another one? You did watch it last week. No, no. But to be fair, they were always mesmerised by, by it. As it started, they never moved, they were captivated. And Dad had a chance to close his eyes. Dad, Dad, Snow White's awake. Oh, 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 lovely, lovely. Were you asleep, Dad? Oh, no. By the mid-90s, both girls were at school. 
On a Monday, and if Debbie was working, I would get them, re get them ready for school and walk them round the corner. One morning, I looked up to the road junction and a car pulled out and was hit by a car turning into his drive. The driver was looking right and concentrating on getting away without stopping at the junction rather than checking on the left. The whole thing ended up in a court case and I was asked to be a witness. Unfortunately, this was on a Friday afternoon, so I had to finish my fish round early, get showered, dressed and head into Reading. Then on the first day, the accused didn't turn up. Apparently you're allowed to do this. It was rearranged, so I lost another Friday afternoon. And no, another Friday afternoon of money and disgruntled customers. This time it went through. I was questioned, was I distracted by my girls? No, not at all. But he lost the case. But he said, thanks for being a witness and I'll drop a bottle of whiskey down to you. But it never arrived. I asked, I was asked to claim expenses. How much was I out of pocket? Now, I said about £350. Ah, well the maximum's only £50. Once both girls were at school, it freed me up on a Monday. I then saw an advert for a job from 10 till 2, any number of hours, some computer knowledge required. By now we had our own PC in the house. It was ideal for me, so I applied. It was putting data of flood levels on the Thames going back many years. It was barely minimum wage, but I was dry, in a warm, and it was something different. I can't remember my exact job title, but it may have been Thames Water Algorithm Technician, or TWA... No, it can't be that for short. That can't be right. I was working with four young mums, so it was all good fun. We even had a Christmas do at the horse and groom. But it didn't last long after that, as they had lost the contract. After three years, Debbie had worked her way up to deputy manager at the Walk Garden. But this brought more responsibilities and stress. She was still working shifts and nights. So she could go off to work on a Saturday, 8 o'clock, sleep in and not get home till 3 o'clock on the Sunday. Now anyone who's worked shifts knows that eventually it wears you down. The constant not knowing of where you're going to be and whether you can do something in a month's time. I then came across an advert in the Reading Chronicle. Shared lives carers required. Can you offer a home to an adult with learning difficulties? Now, by this time, Gay had married George and moved out, and we had moved in the village. Now here's a shock. Estate agents lie. We had been looking for a house in Mortimer for some time. Our budget was around 90000 in 1994. We wanted at least three bedrooms and a bit of a garden. We were sent various houses, but nothing was right. Then on a visit to the estate agents, as we left, we came outside the shop, still talking, and the estate agents were standing in front of the window. Over his shoulder, I said to the agent, 
why haven't we seen this house? I moved him out the way and pointed to a house advertised in the window. What's wrong with that? Oh, that won't be suitable. But on viewing, it was perfect. It had three bedrooms, but with a converted loft complete with a sani loo. Now, because it was a converted loft and didn't have a fixed ladder, you can't call it an extra bedroom. But in any sense of the word, it was. It also had a garage for the fish van, so it was ideal. And it turned out to be one of the best decisions in our life. We started the process, but soon realised it was going to be a long, drawn-out process, and quite rightly, with many checks to be completed to get it just right. We started with interviews and meetings, but we, can told, we were told it would take 18 months before someone moved in. But Deb had had enough, and she handed in a notice at the walled garden. She signed up to do agency work. This meant she could stipulate the days and hours she worked. But this meant she would be sent off within a few hours' notice to a completely new home. But at the end of her shift, she could come home and forget all about it and she was unlikely to be in the front line of any major incident. I was getting on with David's high-quality fresh fish. I know all this talk about Debbie. It's Dave's podcast. By now, I was on my third van, which was a brand new, and it was leased. It was a white Suzuki Super Carry, which is basically a Bedford Rascal with a different name. I chose magnetic signs on the side, and with my new mobile number, which is exactly the same number I have now. Now, it's been 25 years since I finished my fish round, but Mrs Jones phones every Thursday and orders two whole kippers for Friday. The magnetic signs meant they could be removed if I wanted to use the van and run into Reading on a Monday. I carried a can of links to offset any lingering fish odours. Deb had started working two days a week at Stepping Stones. I know, we're back to Deb, but it will be relevant to my story and some of the decisions I make in the next few years. So she was working at Stepping Stones. It was a day centre in Reading, situated just behind the Royal Barks Hospital. We didn't realise it, but Stepping Stones would be a major part of our lives. The people who she worked with would be friends for life and still visit us in Wales. After a few minutes, we all click back into the friendship zone, although we may not have seen each other for well over a year. The Shared Lives application process moved on, and eventually we were matched with a lady who lived in a care home in Reading. The Shared Lives ethos was to move people from institutionalised care home environment to live in the community. Now don't get me wrong, we were getting paid and this would free me up to make certain decisions in the following years. So we were introduced to Pat and our lives changed forever. In the next episode, I leave the fish van behind. But strap yourself in. I then go for a period where I have five jobs in as many years. Never a dull moment. There now follows some bloopers from this week's episode. So I was a Thames Valley algorithm technician. I was a twat.
the shared yard whatever I mean Well, if you've enjoyed this episode, you know what you gotta do. You gotta like it, and you gotta share it.